welcome to another episode of Hot Singles, the only good music podcast on the internet. I am joined by Autumn. Hi, that's me. That is you. Um, and we are joined by a very special guest. Say hello, Mark. Hi, I'm Mark. You are. Um, and Mark has brought along a very special album. Um, and it's a big one, so we're just going to talk about this one. <laughs> um, Mark, do you want to tell everyone what this album is? Uh, I brought the album 69 Love Songs by The Magnetic Fields. Don't fall in love with me yet. We only recently met true. I'm in love with you, but you might decide I'm not. Give me a week or two to go absolutely cuckoo. Then when you see your error, then you can flee in terror. Like everybody else does, I only tell you this cause I'm easy to get rid of. But not if you fall in love, and now that I'm on the make, and if you make a mistake, my heart will certainly break. I'll have to jump in a lake now. is a triple album nice how long is it uh <laughs> it's 172 minutes oh so... I, was get, I was going for 69 songs oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's also you're fine it's also yeah. 69 songs it's three albums of 23 songs it is that and we're gonna we're gonna accidentally or surreptitiously say the word nice as many times as possible in this entire podcast it is a nice so album <laughs> <laughs> so that it, it loops around from being obvious and trite to slightly obnoxious to ecstatic and overwhelming and joyous by the end of the however long this podcast is. Like that's this is the commitment I'm making personally. If I if I thought the bit through better, I would have a little like running tally and I would have cut us off from saying nice once we get to sixty nine nices. Ah, uh, that's a really yeah. good idea. But I, I think mean, we're, we're already, already we're like re- six, but maybe seven, but maybe five. Like, I don't know. It, it's 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 kind of up in the air. Either way, I can in post, if I'm feeling really adventurous, put a little ding every time we say the word nice. God, like a um, cinema sense thing? <laughs> oh, I didn't think of it in those terms. But... I, yeah, I thought you were going to do the cinema sense ding for every time we said nice. Uh Maybe I, also, I need to do the cinema sins thing. This sounds quite funny. Actually. All right, we'll we'll see. I don't. Know. How many times are we going to use? Them? I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm I'm less confident about this bit than you two are. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I mean, I, I'm just saying things to be honest. Um, Isn't that I what podcasting is? This this is just what podcasting is. But generally, we have to plan the things we say so that we don't end up with horrendous bits that go on for two hours of podcasts. So. <laughs> This is why you need to be stopped immediately. Um, (laughs) Speaking of being stopped immediately, Mark, do you want to tell us anything about what the hell this album is? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it is, Wikipedia calls it a concept album, which I guess it is. That's a funny... It, it is an album centered on a concept, but yeah. I don't think... I, I, I think of a concept album as having, like, a narrative. And, I mean, okay. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's not a concept album unless it has a wizard in it. <laughs> yes. Oh, this, this, sh- this, this album has some wizards in it, I, I would say. Okay, um, that's true. At least for me. Okay, so so this album is literally 69 love songs. It is it, Every song on the album is a love song in some form. Some of them are definitely mm-hmm. getting kind of cheeky with it about what that means. But... Um, and almost all of them are kind of like weird little narratives in themselves. Um, I mean, as a love song often is, right? Because you got to have at least two characters or figures to have a love song, right? There's going to be at the very least the speaker and the person the song is addressed to most of the time. So, yeah. Mm. Um, and it's just like... I don't know. It's this kind of ridiculous thing to do, right? Like, I'm going to write 69 love songs, and they're all going to be an album, and it's going to be good somehow. Uh, and he did it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the thing, like, and somehow it's going to be good is the, is the kicker. Like, it's one thing to write a bunch of songs. Like, there are lots of people who have written a shed load of songs. Absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. Trying to turn that into a singular project where it is just, like, part of the bit is there being lots of them seems really audacious but somehow it's like kind of work well and the other like interesting part of the ambition of the album is that like they're largely in different genres there are like regular old pop songs there are regular old rock songs there are like corny jazz pastiches um there are a lot of like weird novelty songs that are still (laughs) good somehow yeah 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 um, you know, like I, I'm a person who enjoys, um, lengthy, lengthy Christmas albums from Sufjan Stevens. <laughs> and he has like sort of one lane that he sticks in through that whole process. Whereas this is like, you know, going through a lot of different territory over the course of its runtime in an interesting way. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's super well known and like influential and like, a lot of people will be like, oh, 69 love songs. Like, a lot of musicians will be like, oh, that mm-hmm. was so important to me. Um, I, I got, there's a, there's a 33 and a half book, which is like, 33 and a half is like a, I don't know, a series of books on, like, cultural commentary. I don't think all of them are albums, are they? Uh, I believe they're all about albums. They are but, about uh, albums? Okay. The, 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 sh- Nature of the books varies a great deal. Yeah. One of them I read that I mentioned on this podcast before, it was written by Ezra Furman about... Um, Transformer. Uh, Transformer, thank you. And, like, it's sort of just a straight up, like, I'm going to go through each song, I'm going to, like, give you some history of Lou Reed, uh, that sort of thing. Another one I read is just a novella by John Darnielle about a Black Sabbath album. Um, and some of them, like, I believe... You mentioned this one is, like, from someone who was working on the album. And so I imagine, like, gives a little more, like, oh, yeah, and on, while we were making this song, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so so 69 Love Songs, A Field Guide is what it's called. Um, and it uh, was written by L.D. Begtoll. Um, it's possible I am mispronouncing his last name. I have never heard it said before. 
Anyway, he's one of the vocalists on the album. Um, and a lot of the book is just people, people who are involved in the album, people who are involved in kind of like the social life of like Stephen Merritt's social life and like the, the magnetic field social life, like in New York at the time. Um, just like dishing about making the <laughs> album, about what the album meant to them, uh, about what like a, an amazing like homo freak Stephen Merritt is. Um, it's great. It's it's a it's a really like funny read, and it just it really there's a there's a section towards the end where I think just like every single person he's talks to uh, describes like what was important to them about the book or whatever. And it's just so many people saying so many different things. Hmm. So to write sixty nine love songs, presumably Stephen Merritt has something to say about love, like. Figuring out what the arc of this project is overall is like kind of overwhelming. Like I've been sitting trying to wrap my head around it in, in, in its entirety, but just like, I don't know. Is there like, is it worth trying to pull out like thesis statements about love or subject matter or even songwriting itself from this project? Like, is that worth a way going into it? Cause I, I have tried desperately and I'm struggling still having spent like a good amount of time with this record. Well, I do have a, uh, uh, like a stick to put in the spokes of your bike there. Because um, you were like, oh, this album must have something to say about love, right? Uh, well, Merritt has said in an interview, and this is quoted on Wikipedia, uh, that 69 Love Songs is not remotely an album about love. It's an album about love songs, which are very far away from anything to do with love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I get the sleight of hand, but I also think that there is... Hmm, some, I know, I... Some, Something trite about that that separation there. I do. Oh, think. I agree. Like I, I think he. <laughs> I don't think that is true. I think he said that in an interview one time because he thought it would be funny. Um, I mean that it, it is quite a funny line. It's a good line. <laughs> yeah. Um, if it means anything, I guess what I would say is that, uh, like, love is such a huge and complicated human experience that it is actually impossible, even with something as monumental as 69 love songs, to really say what it is, right? Like, I think that's kind of what he means by that, is like, look, I just know I wrote some love songs. That's really the most I'm able to claim here. Yeah, yeah. But I do think it's about, like, I do think it's about love. Of course it's fucking about love. Like, of course the songs are actually have content and aren't just all, like, kind of ironic commentary on songwriting itself. Um, yeah. Because that would be boring. <laughs> it would be boring. But also, he's quite good at writing really good songs. <laughs> That's true. Um, and some of them are about songwriting, for sure. Love is like jazz. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting until... Okay, so there are a couple moments where we can just, like... Okay, if we need an in, let's let's deal with some of the sillier ones. Love is like jazz. Second track mm-hmm. on disc two. Um, I, yeah. I feel like a lot of the... Um, the songs that deal more in, like, cliche about songwriting are, are a lot of them concentrated onto disc two. Yeah, you no, know? I... We normally pass all this off so Mark would like 
deal with this one, I would deal with this too, Autumn would deal with this three. And like, it doesn't really well like this, this is very much one single project. But like, I did realize that I got saddled with not quite the like, complete esoterica and strange expansive stuff and not quite the simple pop song. I got the sort of weird transitory period of just like, flimsy nonsense in a lot of places oh. that I, I still know that I'd love them and some of them some of my I think my uh, some of my like absolute absolute favourite tracks in the whole record are here too but at the same time like love is like jazz is here um, <laughs> like, to... so so disc two like doesn't open on love is like jazz but like nearly no. opens on it you also get um like pretty shortly after that like blatant Leonard Cohen pastiche and time enough for rocking when we're yep. old, which yep. to me feels like maybe like poking fun at the concept of love songs because it is like this really like repetitive, even within like the two and a half minutes that it runs, like it is an incredibly repetitive song uh, in, a, in a way that feels like wink, wink, nudge, nudge to me because other songs on this record are not quite so like, uh, 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 repetitive in that way. I was trying to think of a different word, but I couldn't get there, so... <laughs> yeah, th th there's a sort of, like, dogmatic insistence that, no, you are really hearing this right. This is very much the song it sounds like. Compared uh -huh. to some of the stuff that feels, like, very... One of my favorite songs in the first bit of the record is Come Back From San Francisco, which is just, like... Oh, yeah. It is repetitive because it's a beautiful, like, little folk ballad thing. But right, yeah. it feels entirely upfront about that, and it's just, like, not attempting to force you to think about the form when you listen to it. Whereas Time Enough for Rocking absolutely does feel like it's trying to like shove like, look at me, I'm a joke track, slightly. So another one that I find that really funny in that mold is Promises of Eternity, which is also mm. on disc two, um, which is one of the most incredible top lines on the entire album, but just with a sort of like squelchy comedy synth pop vibe, like someone took, I'm trying to think like, aha or um, visage or something like that, like stripped out the, the, the drum set and just like made the, like, the most wonky of 80 synthesizers try and make the backing for a very sentimental sweeping epic pop track. And I, I, it just cracks me up because I can't decide whether to take it deathly seriously or to just like laugh at it. And that's a very fun position to be in with a song that you still think is just like fabulously well written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, the, the role of, like, kind of humor and, mm. you know, what people often call, like, novelty songs on this album is so interesting to me because, like, it, it often feels like a, the, the... There are songs on this album where I'm like, okay, this is just a joke, and I don't enjoy that joke, so I don't yep. really enjoy this song. Um, that is how I feel about uh, Zebra, the last song on the album. Um find that song immensely annoying and i think it is like written to be an annoying song um it's all on like what is it fucking accordion maybe it's concertina yep. um that's like a famous annoying instrument um <laughs> shots fired at all the accordion plays in the chat <laughs> no i that's not what i mean i think you can play an accordion i think you can play an accordion in a way that is enjoyable but people, there is a reputation. Okay, now I'm gonna fire shots at accordion players. I uh, don't think you can play an accordion well. <laughs> okay, well I do because I guess I'm bringing swordfish trombones to the next episode. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is happening? 
But but uh, certainly, okay, regardless of whether uh, it, accordion can be good, certainly the way accordion is played on that track is in the way no. that people think is like terrible, and and the sort yes. of thing that makes people hate accordion is accordion playing mm-hmm. like the accordion playing on zebra. Um, yes. But then, like another song that is a big joke that has a punchline is "Love is like a bottle of gin," but I love that song. Because I think that the delivery of it is not, the delivery of it is funny in that it's almost like this kind of like witty, uh, like, you know, the the whole song is like a bon mot, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But the performance is not all about how stupid this is. The performance is about how absolutely sad it is to be trying to substitute a bottle of gin for love. And that's, like, not a joke. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think some of the songs are jokes in a way that I feel like has a really powerful, like, emotional core, and some of them are not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think just, like, one of my challenges with the record is, like, picking apart, like... I, I tried to not get hung up too much on which songs are jokes because, like, mm. <clears throat> for for me, like, how am I trying to, like, come at the thing I'm trying to say? Like, I hear some songs on this record, and I'll hear, like, I'll hear the Magnetic Fields, like, doing a tongue-in-cheek version of, say, a Leonard Cohen song or, um a Tom Waits song or a George Jones song, like these like very like classic 20th century singers. Um, and, and, you know, older singers than that. Um, and like, I think, I think it, for me, none of the songs come off as jokes, but maybe like homages to other things that are maybe being a little like, haha about it you know but i don't i don't think that like there's not a lot of stuff on this record that comes off as like mean-spirited when it when it comes to joking like i don't know i'm kind of fond of zebra (laughs) well you know that's fair um i yeah no i do think that like the the things that it's joking on are like yeah homages to other music or jokes about, like, how ridiculous people are when they're in love. And I don't think that those are things that the album... Like, I think there is certainly a a baseline care for those things. Like, respect for the artists who are being emulated. And, like, understanding that, you know, having the stupidest, most embarrassing broken heart in the world is also like an extremely real experience, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't matter how joking it gets about those things. It's not actually, yeah, it's not actually mean-spirited, like you said. Mm -hmm. Maybe. See, that's the thing. It's hard to make an absolute statement about this album because there's so much of it and it's so varied that now I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What about, yeah, oh, yeah. Is there a shred of uh, earnestness about love in that song? Maybe not. (laughs) Speaking of, like, you know, exactly that sort of thing that, like, contradicts the point I just made, um, can we talk about how the second song on this album is literally just a, a Velvet Underground song? Like, it is literally Who Loves the Sun, 
It is the yep. exact same song in a really like glaring way that's weird to me <laughs> because I refuse to believe that like the people making this album don't know Velvet Underground. <laughs> of course not. They say there's a song in the sky But me, I can't imagine No, they, they, that's very funny to me because I'm not very familiar with Velvet Underground, so I did not know that someone already the, made that song. The Velvet Underground on um, the 1970 album Loaded, which is explicitly like a joke album, is explicitly like a betrayal of everything their first albums had been about in service of like loading, quote, the records with pop hits. Um, and the first song on that album is Who Loves the Sun? Who Cares That It Makes Flowers? Who Cares What It Does Since You Broke My Heart? Etc. Um, <clears throat> like, it, it's the same song in a really bizarre way that, like, <laughs> kind of set me off on the wrong foot with this record at first, because, like, they're just doing other people's songs? And then I was like, ah, oh, they're doing other songs. I like these other songs. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... <laughs> But yeah, no, like this is this is kind of the world it lives in, where like stealing from the Great American Songbook, where the Great American Songbook covers both Stephen Sondheim and like Lou Reed, is like a very important thing for like the full range of expression in this album, and that means it has to like straddle the lines between utter seriousness, cynicism, and like uh, how how would I put it? That sort of like camp. T taking melodrama really seriously. Like, it's triangulating all of those simultaneously because, like, songwriting triangulates all of them simultaneously, and particularly songwriting about love. Like, the, the, the like, super, super indulgent musical-ass Stephen Sondheim moments on this, on this album, like, absolutely feel like I c there are ways to treat many of those songs both either as cynical or as, like, melodramatic, and both of them work. And the more generous you are to this album, the more it gives back to you, obviously. But you, you know what I think is I maybe... I think all of those oh, moments sorry. have to be in there. Yeah. What I would maybe point to as an example of what you're talking about, of that kind of like two-facedness about melodrama, is I don't want to get over you. Um, because that, like I said, I mean, I mentioned the idea of like the the stupidest, like most obsessed, most pointless breakup feelings ever. That's like what that song is. That song is literally about being miserable and everyone around you being like, you know, you could stop being miserable and you being like, no, I want to be miserable. So like it is mm -hmm. presenting a person who is so caught up in their feelings that they are acting like a fool. Um, and they, everyone else knows it and they know it. So there is a certain, like, cynicism or, like, mockery there. Um, especially, you know, when it's, like, 
uh, dress in black and read Camus. Like, oh, I could take my obsession over this breakup <laughs> so seriously that I start acting like a high school goth. Um, but at the same time, it's like, it's a beautiful song. And like the, um, the, the part where uh, the, the line, not have to dream of what I dream of, the way that um, Merritt's voice kind of like lowers and like he draws back a little bit on what I dream of. It's like he doesn't quite want to tell you what he dreams of because that is like too upsetting. Um, like, I don't want to tell you what it is that I'm avoiding thinking about because it's like this is the like the, <clears throat> the dangerous thing in my mind that all this stupid shit about how actually I want to be sad. It is orbiting this thing where I can't actually stop having these feelings. You can't not have dreams that you're having. Even if you don't really tell anyone what the dreams are. And even if you make all these jokes about it, and even if you're like, Oh yeah, I could just stop doing this anytime, but I'm not gonna, you know, I guess uh, to mm. me, it's a joke. It's a song that is very um, cynical in a lot of its language, but in its performance tells you, yeah, but ultimately you can't be cynical about this um, when like sadness is this overwhelming. Mm. Yeah. I, I think, I, sorry, sorry, sorry. <clears throat> no, you're fine. I have like a, a, a point that sort of follows from that, but it's going to go like wide a field before I like get back to it. So if you have something to say, Alexis, please. <laughs> I, th I was also probably going to branch off into another thing. So go for it yourself. Um, so like at the place that I work, um, the radio has been playing White Ferrari by Frank Ocean a lot lately. Wow. Um, and I like, wow. <laughs> like once a day, White Ferrari comes on and I have to like go to the back for a minute because like, White Ferrari is like the soundtrack to like two different breakups for for me in my oh. life. Um, and uh, one of the things, this is like sort of what I wanted to say that ties into what Mark was just saying. Like one of the things that I do find so fun about this album is that um, because it is so expansive, there are a lot of songs on this album that don't really resonate with my experience with love, but there are other songs that do, and I absolutely see how, like, you know, if I was at a different place in my life, like, oh, this one song, you know, like, whatever, like, track 27, that's the, uh, oh, I said time enough for Rocking Moon World. Uh, <laughs> track, you know, 49, I'm not even going to see what that is. Uh, that's the soundtrack to my breakup, and I listened to it a hundred times, and, you know, like, <clears throat> in some ways, like, the album might not matter as much as, like, Oh, I had this one song that I latched onto, um, and like really just listened to so until like I wore that shit out. Um, uh, which is which is fun that like by writing so many songs that are so like varied in content that like everybody's gonna have one that like really like resonates to some personal life experience, you know? Yeah, um, I, I would so you're you're leading into something that I had been thinking about that I wanted to mention, which is that um, this came out in 1999. This is an album for listening to on shuffle on your iPod. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't that's not to say that I don't think that the um, 
you know, the album as a whole or the, the three sub albums have like structure that matters. Like I think listening through from beginning to end or listening through any individual album, any individual uh, uh, disc, I guess, from beginning to end, I think those are worthwhile things to do. But I also think that just putting the whole thing on shuffle is like an intended listening experience. Um, <laughs> and, and that's even, I think, part of the, like, something that you can do is be like, I'm having a feeling, and I don't really know what it is. I'm going to put 69 love, strong, love songs on shuffle until I hear the song that is this feeling. Yeah, because emotional you're, thought throwing. Yeah. You're going to find it eventually. <laughs> so one of them is going to hit the nail on the head. Um, um. Autumn, for reference, track 49 is Busby Berkeley Dreams. And I want to meet the person whose breakup sounds like <laughs> Busby Berkeley Dreams. Yeah. I mean, it is um, a breakup song. It's very much a breakup song. And it's... But also, like, I I want to know the kind of romantic, like, capital R romantic, who literally does have, like, the, like, vast, elaborate choreo- choreography going on in their head. It's, like, the, the backstage, like... Gatsby-esque opulence thing going on in the background to their their, their doomed romance. I love this. You know what the um, person who I want to meet, who's like breakup is one of these songs? Oh. Um, hmm. Is, uh, oh shoot. What the hell's the actual name of the song? Um, God damn it. Because it's not like the first line in the song, which is what I want it to be. But um, the one that starts, Hey Lady Day. Um, oh, uh, ba 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 What the hell is the freaking song called? My only friend. My only friend. There we go. Yes. Uh, much as you want to meet the person whose breakup feelings are genuinely mediated by like Busby Berkeley choreography, <laughs> I want to meet the person who was like, yeah, I was genuinely gonna kill myself after this breakup, uh, but then, you know, um. Uh, I listened to Lady Day and she saved my life again. Like, it's not so much that I'm like, oh, this doesn't make sense. And more I'm like, this is so pure. Mm. Like, (laughs) this, everyone knows that that's sort of what those songs are about is like, like comforting you in heartbreak, really some of them. But like, uh, this is, the person expressing this is expressing a cultural idea so perfectly that this is a person who couldn't be real. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Um, did you, you had this thing you were gonna kick out to yeah, Alexis. Yeah, so, so the, the, just that, that, trying to just bounce off that point very briefly before I like say the thing I was gonna say anyway. The, the thing about My Only Friend, because this is another one of those this two tracks that I love despite it being very strange in the way it constructs itself. Because like, I could imagine this on uh, this one being like a ukulele ballad with like one instrument very quiet and mostly just solo vocal. But no, it's this like weird slapback delayed piano like arpeggiating all over the place. Like that's obviously a very deliberate decision. Like the way to present this track is this way. Yeah. And like putting it amongst the other tracks that like have this slightly like heightened way of approaching the, the instrumentation. I... It's kind of where I was going ultimately. Like, I find this to be one of the best examples of it. But I think given that we were starting off talking about I Don't Want to Get Over You, which is one of the most muscular, straightforward rock songs 
in a way that I just love. I I could listen to an album full of I Don't Want to Get Over You over and over again, and I like the band Yola Tango because they basically do make the song I Don't Want to Get Over You 15 times and call it an album. Um, <laughs> the way that they, the, the way that the album sounds is so peculiar in a really, really interesting way. And Autumn bringing up Velvet Underground sort of like, maybe sort of settles in my mind slightly more how and why I think it sounds the way it does. Because it's really, really lacking in drums. I say lacking as if like, relative to what I imagine like a normal late 90s, early 2000s indie album should sound. Right. There's, a, yeah. there's, a, there's an expectation for impact and thickness in your rhythm section that just is absent. Um, there are barely any bass parts and the drum parts are often just very reserved or absent. Um, it's also just like full of space in the like, it's so sure of how much it wants to put the weight on the lyrics and the vocal performance. Yeah. That often it just like hides all the instrumentation in the background just fully knowing it's there as a And like, Obviously, it means like it does things to, like where your attention goes. Often, it often it does like. I, I I find that method of presenting the song, for me personally, this is I think quite an individual reaction. But it makes it more able to undercut itself. Like I find, if the song were balanced in inverted commas in the way I'd expect most indie rocks to, and that I think I don't want to get over you comes closest to on this whole album, I would be in a sort of like an emotional register that matched the like totalizing effect of being like uh, not quite in the room of the band but listening to a band as you normally would in any other circumstances mm. whereas tracks where they like fully like push the vocals right to the front push the instruments all the way down turn the drums down in particular into an area where like yes they're present but you notice their lack of like impact and their lack of like being up front um that forces you to like I have a like the, the standard way was just like reach for breath and say it's like a deliberate alienation device. I don't think it is that way because I think this is just like aping the more I think about it, aping just older songwriting like both techniques but also like compositional and production standards. Like yes, this mm. this sounds much more like a sixties album. As soon as yes. Autumn starts talking about Velvet Underground, like this sounds like it's cribbing from, you know, Pet Sounds and. Uh, Velvet's much more, and with that sense of depth associated with it. I, which, I had not thought of Pet Sounds, but this is, wow, this is just Pet Sounds. <laughs> I, I mean, it's in, also... In big places, yeah. When you're talking about, like, uh, things it's yeah, drawing on that, that sort of support this, like, extremely vocals-forward style most of the time, um, it's also musical theater, yeah. and, like, specifically well, I, I, Sondheim. Yeah, I, mm. that's I had already mentioned, but like yeah. absolutely yes. Yeah, that's like that's like a an explicit inspiration. Merritt has talked about that. Like, uh, and and uh, you know, obviously in musical theater, like the whole point <laughs> is that you're gonna hear yeah. the things people are saying as they're singing. Um, <laughs> it's actually very funny to me. Uh, I like to listen to music on my phone now, uh, but mm. it is like actual C- uh, MP3s that I own. I like to listen to those on shuffle um, and I have some musical theater in my library and it's always very funny because it's mixed so differently from any like pop or rock song. Like I always have to crank it way the hell up to hear anything. (laughs) Uh, Mm. And this is not like that, but um, 
certainly like, um, you know, that is an influence and it feels like it's kind of for the same reason, which is to say so much character needs to be communicated in two to three minutes. So you're really going to have to hear every little inflection of the voice of the person who is speaking, singing. Mm. Um, except on a track like I Shatter, uh, where the vocals are almost overwhelmed by this, like, heavy, like, what is it? Like, synth sound? Um, I, I kept trying to figure it out. My best guess is it's double-tracked strings. Mm. Oh yeah, it's definitely some kind of strings. Yeah, like it definitely either heavily affected or played below the bridge or something like that, like or pitched afterwards. And yeah, like obviously the vocals also running through this like horrible autotune style wobbly vocal voice effect. Yeah, but even there, I definitely think like the the thing that happens in I Shatter where the um, you know the uh, instrumental does come to the fore more. It comes to the fore by like sharing its character with the vocals. Like the vocals and the instrumental almost like start to merge (laughs) in that track, um, for at least to my ear. Um, And Mm -hmm. so it's like the instrumentals only come forward if they are expressing the mood of the vocals. And the mood of the vocals is something where almost like the, the, I Shatter is a weird track, I think, because the scenario that it's describing is so bizarre and alien that the it, it, it's like a fully impressionistic experience yeah. there's none of the um lots of these songs are salted with little kind of a uh, cultural references particular cities are mentioned uh other like musicians are name dropped i shatter feels to me you know i was like maybe there's some wizards in this album for me <laughs> i i shatter sounds like something that like i don't know um like a primordial spirit that has like come face to face with a being that has the opposite energy form from it would sing. <laughs> like it doesn't feel human. God, it's a good track. God, that's a fucking good track. <sighs> so this is actually where I want, like having had all this to just like establishing what it's drawing from and how it's doing the thing it's doing. At that point, going back to um, my only friend, mm. which is a track that I think like um, is very much well more so than any of the like very quiet ukulele tracks. Like, is pushing the instrumentation very slightly more forward, while also telling a song, well, telling a story in the song that I don't think mismatches what's being said explicitly, but does like peel apart from it in a way that I think is genuinely kind of important for the track. Like, it's those mm. sorts of moments that I think like because of the nature of the album, the way it's structured, like start emerging in various different ways in this too. And like keep expanding as it gets like weirder. That like, that's the thing that like makes the, the like arc of the album, like so intriguing to me. They're like, you get to I Shatter, which is like wholly alien, but only through, yeah. Tracks like My Only Friends, Promises of Eternity, which like have to take it along the ability to like add content, which Paul provides, you know, tension, elasticity and maybe also like conflict um like emotional conflict through the like the failures of uh, like pathetic fallacy like Mm. everything in the first part of the album feels like so perfectly internal to itself and then slowly like it starts you know twisting its own neck in my own in my head yeah i can see that 
I think that makes sense mm. as kind of a progression to see here. But I mean, again, this this comes the same uh, the same time. It's just like sometimes they just either put tracks that don't follow the arc because they're either complete nonsense or fully back in the in the in the original wheelhouse. Like saying it again, saying anything definitive is hard because there are fucking sixty nine tracks, you know. Yeah, I would mm. say there's like very little space between uh, the vocals and the instrumentals in terms of like the vibe that they're communicating in mm. Washington D.C. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that song is just like, hey, we have one mood and we're going to hit it. And it's up to you to decide, like, what what you think about that mood or whether you think it's sincere at all. Uh, yeah. But we know what we're doing with this track, like, tonally. <sighs> I, uh, all the commentary on that in the 33 and a half book is about how much Washington, D.C. sucks as a city. <laughs> and how like having this type of ecstatic excitement about it is like absurd and stupid and that's kind of the point of the song right um that uh, actually there's nothing appealing about washington dc the only reason you'd be this rapturous about it is if that was the only place you could get laid i'm saying absolutely fucking nothing right now <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so there is a common, so like a common trope, songs about cities and going to them. Um, yes. I already mentioned "Come Back from San Francisco," which I think is one of my favorites. Um, luckiest guy on the is it East Side? Is that lower East Side, yeah. On which is side. that's such a funny thing because the Lower East Side, in in that sense. In, it, as something you would call the Lower East Side rather than like the East Village or like maybe Chinatown does not exist anymore. And it was on the way out when this album came out. Like, because the idea, the idea of the Lower East Side as like a working class immigrant neighborhood, but immigrant neighborhood in the like 20th century uh, American sense. So like, like a Jewish and Italian neighborhood. That, that just... That cultural idea has has mostly passed out of actual existence in in New York City. Like not, I don't want to say absolutely, completely. That is not true. Um, but like, it's uh, there's a bit in the Thirty Three and a Half book where someone is like, "Ugh, the East Village. It's the Lower East Side." And I read that and I was like, "Man, I'm sorry to tell you, it is the East Village now." <laughs> um, you know, gentrification one. Yes. Yeah. This is just a quick little joke thing. I, I listened to The Luckiest Guy on the Lower East Side, and it did make me think of um, the Fly of the Concord song from, like, a couple of years later, uh, You're the Prettiest Girl in the Room. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just, that's all. There's not a point there. I just heard that. I, it wasn't even that I heard the song. It was that I read the song title, and I thought about that song. You know, this album probably is a pretty big influence on Flight of the Concords. Oh, almost, almost certainly. Almost certainly, yeah. You you take this and you like turn the like comedy knob up like fifteen percent, but still keep it kind of like the comedy as dry as this album is, and I think you're at Twilight the Concords. Well, the yeah. other thing you have to do is turn the gay knob from like ninety five percent to maybe five or ten. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Because um, it's a it's a pretty gay album. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. What are some of the gay highlights? Because I've got my personal gay highlight on this album. 
But my I, my gay highlight um, by far is when my boy walks down the street. We yes, the same gay yes, yeah, so. that is a song. <laughs> that is a song about a boy wife. <laughs> Very. He's gonna be my clearly. wife. Is just it's a mood. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, there is there is no ambiguity in the like type of boy the song is about. Um, His pronouns are she her. <laughs> It's so good. Um, uh, I'm going to check the exact line in the lyric because I want to pull it up very precisely about the physical description. Um, uh, Where has it gone? Flimsy Steve, where have you gone? (laughs) Yeah. um, um, So big and yet so petite. (laughs) Yeah. I know boys who are so big and yet so petite who are wives. This is this is a good a yeah. good lane for a boy to be in. Yeah. Grand pianos crash together when my boy walks down the street. There are all new kinds of weather when he walks with his new beats. Everyone sings hallelujah when my boy walks down the street. Uh, can I maybe throw out, I don't know, maybe a song that might be debatable as to whether, as to how gay it is, but for me it's a very gay song, is uh, Papa mm-hmm. Was a Rodeo. Um, not, let me look at the lyrics for that one again, because I, so, uh, like, I can hear the melody in my head, but not quite. Um, home was anywhere with diesel gas, love was a trucker's hand. To me, that's very gay. And like the love song is about being like, yeah, I'm too like hard and tough and masculine. And I'm, you know, I'm a creature of the road. Uh, I'm a creature of like uh, roping steers and playing guitar. And then the other person says, hey, that's me too. That's the cute little romantic punchline of the song. And it really is like one of the sweetest songs in terms of the way it resolves, where it's like, yeah, we lived together for 55 years and we're still in total love. But like the way that the vocal performances from Merritt and Sims, like Stephen Merritt is really leaning into this like gay cowboy thing vocally. And then when Claudia Sims comes in, like, yeah, she is a woman, but she sounds like a gay cowboy twink. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that one's very gay to me. Uh, despite technically speaking, being sung by a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Technicalities. Genuinely. Yes. <laughs> um, I think we could also cite, uh, I mean, there's just a number of songs on this album which are just explicitly textually gay, like uh, acoustic guitar, right? That's an incredibly mm-hmm. lesbian song. Oh, maybe yeah. if I get really good at playing acoustic guitar, my girlfriend will get back together with me. <laughs> um, or uh, uh, Reno Dakota. Reno Dakota is an explicitly bisexual song, which is a little hard to pull off, but it's like, okay, so the speaker... I mean, Claudia Gonson. Oh, I said Claudia Sims, and that's not her name, isn't it? 
I said I was confusing her with. Uh, anyway, um, Sims is the female vocalist on uh, um, Papa Was a Rodeo. Uh, Shirley Sims. Claudia Gonson, the vocalist on Reno, Dakota. You know, she is a woman. We can hear that her voice is probably a woman's voice. Reno, Dakota is like, I mean, it's a real person who is a man, but if you don't know that, I think it's a very gender ambiguous name. So Reno, yeah. Dakota, unknown gender, is in a relationship with a woman speaker, but then when she gets jealous, she's like, is there a boy who, well, he's just a whore. Uh, so the speaker thinks that maybe Reno is cheating with a boy, but the speaker's also with boys. So it's like, are you with a man who would be cheating on you with a man, but you also would have had sex with his like male partner? Mm. Or are you with a woman who's cheating on you with a man? Either way, like there's no way to resolve this heterosexually, even yes. though you could theoretically imagine that it's a woman singing to a man. It's still a bisexual woman singing to a bisexual man. Like it just mm -hmm. is that. Reno, Dakota, there's not an iota of kindness in you. You know you enthrall me and yet you don't call me. It's making me blue. Pantone 292. Reno, Dakota, I'm reaching my quota of tears for the year. Alas and alack, you just don't call me back, you have just disappeared. It makes me drink beer. I know you're a recluse, you know that's no excuse, Reno, that's just a ruse. Do not play fast and loose with my heart. Reno, Dakota, I'm no Nino Rhoda, I don't know the score. Have I annoyed you, or is there a boy who, well, he's just a whore? I've had him before, it makes me drink more. I think it makes me drink beer is possibly the best vocal delivery on the entire album. <laughs> I, I think when she says, um... That's just a ruse. It's very good because that's such a ridiculous way to pronounce that word, but she sells it. She's got to rhyme it with recluse and excuse, so yeah, you've got to pull out enough. The book claims that's her natural pronunciation of ruse. Um, I don't know if I believe that. Um... This is slightly out of left field, but um, because we've talked about the way that this album can like attach to personal experiences, would it be all right if I talked a little bit about like the part of my life that I associate most strongly with this album? Uh, oh, absolutely. So this is not, um, okay. So my first year of college, uh, I made a bunch of like very close friends pretty quickly because I joined this science fiction club. Um, and that is how I met my wife, Hannah, and also my, like, roommate, podcast partner, BFF, Ben. Uh, so some good things came out of that. But there was also this guy who I very quickly became, like, best friends with. And he had a girlfriend, but she was on study ab abroad in France. And they decided they would have an open relationship since she was on study abroad. So, like... It was totally cool that, like, we ended up by the end of the semester doing things like cuddling in bed, right? 
It was not totally cool. Uh, it turned out she was not serious about that whole open relationship thing. And he was like, I'm sorry, we can't date. And I was like, oh, that's fine. Uh, and he introduced me to 69 Love Songs. <laughs> and sorry, then introduce you to 69 Love Songs as a coping mechanism? I couldn't <laughs> say. I really could not describe what was going through that guy's head at that time. I've often mm. thought about it. Um, so, okay. There's that guy. Uh, then there was also um, a person who was GMing a tabletop game that I was in with that guy and another person who was also kind of my best friend, uh, who was a girl who was like two years older than me and whom I viewed as my younger sister because of the way that she behaved all the time. And then our, our tabletop GM, who would go on to be the person who ran a singing group that I was involved with that, like, destroyed my mental health. So, all right, the GM, the two other people in the tabletop game, one of whom is this person who, uh, it turns out, can't actually date me. All four of us are... There are, there are complicated relationships along every possible line of that uh, love quadrilateral. At the same mm -hmm. time, none of us are technically sexually or romantically involved with each other. And then I went on my study abroad uh, to St. Petersburg over the summer. St. Petersburg, Russia. <laughs> Not the one in Florida, which wouldn't be study abroad. But, yeah, no, um, I was going to double check that one bit, yes. Yeah, um, and unlike many other European cities, um, most people in St. Petersburg really do not speak English at all. Um, and I did not really speak Russian. And I did not like any of the other people in my study abroad program. So I basically spent the entire summer doing one of three things, uh, one of four things. One of them was just like attending the actual classes I was there for. Another one was wandering around the city, listening to 69 love songs on loop, like just going into weird little random museums, uh, walking around an abandoned train yard, uh, just like looking at the streets and the canals because it's a very beautiful city. Uh, it was the summer, which means it didn't get dark until like, 10 or 11 p.m. at night often. So yeah, just wandering around on my own, listening to 69 love songs over and over and over. Chatting on like Google chat with these three people that I was in this weird shape with uh, until way too late at night, because of course they were in the US and I was in Russia. Um, and like I would, you know, in the morning I would wait desperately for them to wake up so I could talk to them. Uh, and then the fourth thing that I did was crying because that was like the most depressed I've ever been in my life. Um, and that's something that I can't help but think about every time I listen to this album, at least a little bit, especially on certain songs like Come Back from San Francisco, where there's the line, I've never stayed up as late as this, or like, um, uh, an another, another song that really sticks here for me is, um, Promises of Eternity, because I did feel like I had been made promises that were being taken back. Um, and, uh, also, um, shoot, what's the one? Long Forgotten Fairy Tale. This is one that I didn't really associate with this song at the time, but Long Forgotten Fairy Tale is about, like, your abusive lover returning to you and you becoming completely caught up in that person's fantasy world. And I think about that now when I think about the person who is GMing the fantasy tabletop game that I was in and obsessed with uh, and who like 
came to fully define my life at the end of college before I cut off my relationship with her. Like, this whole album is just weighed down by my study abroad summer in 2011 um, for me. And yet, also, it's like... Because it is so heavily associated with that summer in so many just, like, toxic, layered ways, re-listening to the album, as I have quite a lot in the 11 years since then, has, like, been my way of moving past those relationships and moving past the person I was at that time, because I'll listen to these songs again and I'll be like, yeah, this does make me think about that time and those relationships. Wasn't that terrible? And you can move through it with the song, you know? Um, Listening to and singing along with and feeling I don't want to get over you is actually a way to get over someone. Um, So yeah, those are my thoughts about my context with this album. Yeah. So again, it is looping back yet again, but I find it so fascinating that that depth of feeling can get found on not not that it can be but that it it so sincerely resonates in promises of eternity and long forgotten fairy tale which are two right. of the like those songs which have instrumentals that pull apart from their text yes so so forcefully yeah yeah i don't i i really think that even some of the most silly like songs it is possible to get some kind of core out of them maybe i can't do that with a. Uh, experimental music love um but i still think I that like song is good yeah no I it's like good experimental music love but i don't think you're getting elaborate narratives so. <laughs> um. <clears throat> um um i have like a, a thing i can pull out if either of you are interested um in yeah. the th- 33 and a half book Uh, One of the fun little goodies that it contains is uh, rankings of the best and worst songs uh, on the album from... Oh my God, please. From the... Okay. Uh, This is Appendix D in the book, top 10, then and now. These polls were conducted on the stevensongs.com mailing list. I've been a member since 1996. Uh, That's (laughs) from the like introductive paragraph by John John Sandini. I don't know who that is. Um, a big name on uh, the stevensongs.com mailing list in 2006. <laughs> okay, so the mailing list, uh, I'll, I'll go from the bottom to the top for the top 10 songs as of April 2006. Um, okay. 10 is a tie between I Think I Need a New Heart and Nothing Matters When We're Dancing. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Nine is Come Back from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Eight is, yeah, oh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's, that's wild. It's wild to me that that gets that high. I could see that. I could see that. In 2006? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Seven. Seven is Long Forgotten Fairy Tale. Six is Busby Berkeley Dreams. Five is All My okay. Little Words. Four is Papa Was a Rodeo. Yeah, uh, okay. Uh, three is Luckiest Guy on the Lower East Side. Two is I Don't Want to Get Over You. And one is The Book of Love. Mm-hmm. I, I, get, I, I guess I indicated the book of love by was my... was a little corny. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. 
It is. Sorry, it just... No, it is corny. <laughs> You're not wrong. I like it a lot, though. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a corny, like, love song. Even a corny wedding song. Um, a lot of people talk uh-huh. in the book about like coming out to it at weddings. That is about how corny love songs are, but in a totally sincere way. Um, mm-hmm. Like it. It is like, yeah, the book of love is long and boring. Like, thinking about love is trite. Everyone has already said everything about love. There's nothing to say. And then it makes that statement and still somehow comes back to, like, pure sentiment. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is corny. (laughs) Uh, The the thing I thought was immediately, surely there's, like, a a mid-2000s Matthew McConaughey film with like <laughs> this is the centerpiece the god god um, it, it turns out there isn't um uh, you're theorizing that it was part of the reconnaissance i thought no i thought it was weird. it would be absolutely pre reconnaissance okay i'm like pre reconnaissance like. yeah yeah there's a there was a time in the 2000s where um like my mom was just hopelessly in love with Matthew McConaughey's characters that he played in like various like romance movies of the time. That's the Matthew McConaughey I'm thinking of, not the True Detective like second phase of right. his career. Right, that's yeah. right. Yes, that is pre McConaughey. That's the era of Matthew McConaughey that John Egbert is obsessed with. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, um, but, but yeah. In- instead, there is. The- I need to find it. Um, not that one. That is a. TV movie. This one. Uh, the Book of Love. Oh, sorry. Book of Love. No article. Is a 2004 American film written and directed by Alan Brown and starting Francis O'Connor, Simon Baker, that guy, What is the Mentalist? <laughs> and Gregory Smith. This is the film that I thought existed, and I'm going to send you the poster because it is crucially important that you see this poster. Um. That's what I thought the Book of Love film would look like. And I was entirely Fuck. right. It was, okay, it was but... just the guy, what was the mentalist and oh. not McConaughey. <laughs> yeah, I see exactly what you mean. Um, is this, <laughs> is it, does it have the song in there or? Um, I'm going to double check, but I think the reason I found this is because the, um, the Book of Love song. Um, uh, in popular culture, um, the uh, no wait hang on uh, it is also the source of the title of the film in which the song is prominent Book of Love starring Simon Baker oh, so yes God. yeah okay you're right maybe the song The Book of Love is dead uh, thanks for <laughs> thanks for killing the romance in my soul uh, the, the, hey the, you're talking to two people who I'm sure you will know will find no reason to kill the magic and joy of things that are also fully ensconced in pop cultural detritus. Like <laughs> this is this isn't how it works. You don't need to kill the magic yourself just because there's a 2004 Simon Baker product with it. Do you want to know the bottom ten songs? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Also from this April two thousand six. Honestly. <laughs> All right, so ten is bitter tears. Um, okay. Nine is Fido, your leash is too long. Eight is how yeah. fucking romantic. Oh, no. Uh, come on. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that is, like, everyone missing the point. Um, seven is I Shatter. 
that's Weird. that's reprehensible, frankly, because yes. that's one of the best tracks it, on the is record. It, is it because of the Dr. Seuss, like, you called me mad, mad as a hatter? Like, is it because of that? <laughs> I think it's because, because, I mean, maybe. I think it's because it's so, like, alien in the way I was describing. Mm. Um, uh, six is Zebra. Um, eh. Yeah, fine. Five is Xylophone Shaking my track. head, Zebra's fine. Not taking all the zebra slander on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, five is xylophone track. Um, four is experimental music love. Also just wrong. Incorrect. Yeah. Three is love in the shadows. That upsets me. Um, Gotta pull up the uh, melody for that one so I remember which one it is. Oh, People... no, this is nice. I remember liking this one. Love in the shadows is like... I mean... Oh, yeah, this is one of the better ones. This is, I like, don't know about one of the better ones, but this is good. If they made a sound... If they made a, a movie of um, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, I think this should be in oh, the soundtrack. Because wow. yeah. this is this is a song about finding, like, a deep, passionate connection with another extremely, like, physically unhealthy person in the back of a, like, porno movie theater. Mm-hmm. To me. That's what Love in the Shadows is. Um, Sh- shout out to Samuel Delaney. Yeah. Uh, two is love is like jazz. And one is, <laughs> one is punk love. Uh, love is yeah. like jazz. Maybe you should have the first spot. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Love is like jazz is so mean. Stephen Merritt clearly hates jazz. <laughs> or at least that's I was, what I, I get. I was reading the lyrics to that song to Nora earlier. And she was like, is that what jazz is like? And I'm like, no! No, it's not! It's not what jazz is like at all! I'm surprised um, a girl is like, is not, um, a pretty girl is like, sorry, is not one of those that like, got, either got the like, ah, this is secretly genius, but more likely got the, no, this is trash. In the same way that, um, lovers like jazz. Pretty a pretty girl is like in lovers like jazz. are like twinned in my head for being like the, the horrible, but one being the the like the knowing cynical, and the other being the like indulgent flip side of each other, for for for, for making puns and more or less getting away with it. I it is I think a- if I was gonna say something like incredibly mean about this album, it's that like, sure anyone can write sixty nine love songs when you had the length by finding easy similes like that and um, <laughs> making a three minute song out of it. <laughs> yeah, no, a pretty girl is like, I mean, a pretty girl is like, as you say, easy similes. Also, it's like, I mean, I know this is not like a fair thing to credit. Like, I don't mean to say this is the most important thing, but it is quite problematic in multiple oh. different directions. <laughs> like, if you do it wrong, you could do time. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? Bruh. Also, also uh, mentions a minstrel show. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, none of that is especially great. Um, so, again, this is one of those moments where, like, the fact that... This is this is kind of why it runs the full range for me. Like the fact that there are so many songs where I'm caught about whether to take them seriously or not means that when you get presented with this or Queen of the Queen of the what what the fuck Queen of the Savages, I excise the excise the word from my brain, which is why it took me a moment to recall it. Um, when you get a pretty girl as like and Queen of the Savages, like I'm stuck with exactly how unserious to be about them because 
Like, I... Especially... I want, I want to be generous, and I also, like, don't think the joke lands even if I'm being generous. So, you know. Queen of the Savages is about um, dating Ayla from Chrono Trigger. Yeah, yeah. Um, with all of the, with all of the cute, like genuine, like charming vibes that that. Yeah. Did you not also have this thought? I had exactly the same thought. (laughs) Which is to say that there's a bunch of like charming stuff in there, but at the same time, it is like a kind of fundamentally uh, offensive idea about, you know, quote unquote primitive humans. Um, <sighs> You're quite taken by the, the. I had it literally exactly the same thought, which is good. I I'm, I'm glad about that. That's just the that's the touchstone for sexy cave woman in my mind. Yeah. Oh, entirely. To be honest, the 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 the, the annoying alternative because it's highly unromantic is Flintstones. Mm, which is, yeah. Which is like the problem is like you literally do have like a a married guy double act is the central well, thing there. But the Flintstones Congrats is on all... finding the one thing more sexless than Chrono Trigger. <laughs> Wait, about... hang, hang on. Okay, hang Ayla's on. very sexual in Chrono Trigger. Yeah, they 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 are trying to make you horny for her. Whether or not they succeed, no, fair I don't point, know that, but... that. I don't know that Toriyama has ever draw, drawn like a sexy person. He what? tries. Boy, he tries. Have you seen how people are about Bulma on this website? I know how people are. Have I you seen the are. fits on Frog? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, okay. The raw sexual power of frog is its own matter. Nora um, is very cross with me right now. <laughs> Nora is upset at me describing Chrono Trigger as sexless. I mean, you're you're factually wrong. So. I I uh, Chrono Trigger as a whole is, I think, not very sexy. I'm just saying they do want you to have a crush on Ayla. Yeah, um, absolutely. She's when she scampers, her little tail flicks around. Hmm. Um. Um, but, uh, the thing I I was just about to say about the Flintstones, (laughs) the entire sort of concept of that stupid show is that it's like, ooh, it's cavemen, but they have all of the annoying, uh, things about modern life that we do in, like, Like 1960. Yeah, exactly. Like whiny (laughs) wives and, like, a bunch of technology in your home that is a pain in the ass, but it's a pain in the ass because it's actually a living bird creature. Um... Uh, whereas I think the image of cave woman, uh, there's no queen of the savages is about someone who doesn't have a bird typewriter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. That was a stupid thing to say. I love it. To be honest, (laughs) the second thing I thought after thinking about Ayla was thinking about Lum. So. Mm, Yeah. 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 That's the thing. If it was just a song about dating, like, an alien girl who has, like, zero connection to modern human culture because of that, then it would just be, like, a cute song. Um, But because it has, like, essentially a slur in the title, um, (laughs) it's not good. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But, I mean, again, as we've said, this is a big album. It is indeed a 69-song long album. Um, which means that there are going to be missteps. Like, not yeah. everyone can be a banger. Um, uh, and But, like, I, it's not even like, a, oh, it was 1999. There were other times. Like, I can see mm. the joke. I can see the joke. 
it's just not a good joke. I don't think it mm. ever was a good joke. Um, a Pretty Girl is Like a Violent Crime is a far worse and far less impactful love song than A Boy Is A Gun. And, like, that that metaphor is, like, not a complex metaphor, but, like, you can do this joke well. You just didn't do it well this time. Yeah, and also you did this joke better in Love Is Like A Bottle Of Gin, which yes. is a pile of... It's, it is a pile of hoary cliches about both love and drinking. But by lining them up with each other, you've pointed out, hey, aren't these hoary cliches the same? Doesn't that maybe say something quite sad? <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, it's just like a, objectively doing something better with the idea of piling up a bunch of boring similes. Yep. Would either of you want to talk about like personal favorite tracks at all? Um, I feel like we, we've come around to a lot of the favorites, um, Mm. but, uh, when my boy walks down the street and need a new heart are definitely, um, yeah, are definitely like the two best in my book. That's kind of what Uh, I was moving towards is that we haven't yet talked about, I think I need a new heart at all. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I first had the thought about, like, oh, this could soundtrack anyone's breakup, like, it was, that song is what I thought of, you know, like, or, or this album, like, anybody's gonna find their breakup song, like, that's not the song that I thought of, that is, like, mm. the breakup song on the album, like, there are, there are many breakup songs on the album, but that's the one. Time stands still, all I can feel is the time standing still as you put down the keys and say, don't call me. While the radio plays, I think I need a new heart. Oh, I think I need a new heart. Oh. You've lied to. Right, but I also think it's interesting because, like, the, the feeling in I Think I Need a New Heart and the idea just expressed by that, like, sentiment, that sentence, is feels very universal and breakup-y. Like, yeah, like, this has gone in such a way that I just, I need to replace my own heart <laughs> just to get by. But it also, like, in the lyrics is a weirdly specific and odd breakup because it's not you don't care about me. It's, I don't care enough about you. I just want to have like kind of a casual relationship with you, but I keep saying that it's way more serious than it really is. And that is like messing everything up between us. And that's why you're leaving me. Like, I wish I was a different person so that I could have loved you better is what I hear in this song. Um, 
And that's just, I don't know. I think it's really interesting that that is like a, that is not a type of breakup. There's, there's a, I guess a wistfulness to that where it's like, ultimately, actually this breakup is not about you. I'm not really begging mm -hmm. you to come back. I'm not really obsessed about my feelings about you. I'm thinking about myself and how I need to like change as a person. And also I can't because the only way I could change as a person would be to rip my heart out of my chest. Um, I don't know. That's, that's how I feel about that yeah. song. Yeah. Um, Just the, the chorus is impeccable. Like it shouldn't go on steady yeah. that like it sounds so good. Yeah. The, yeah, that's just, like, the height of, like, the songwriting on the album, to me, is just, like, the top line there and stuff like that, so. Yeah. <clears throat> um. yeah I'm, I think I've also hit all my all my peaks, which I think were, obviously, when my boy walks down the street, um, Promises of Eternity, I probably put I Don't Believe in the Sun in there. And oh, interesting. From, and Come Back from San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and I shatter. Yeah, and I shatter. That's probably the the pantheon for me. Yeah. I think for me, it's definitely I need a new heart. It's the book of love. <laughs> it's a couple different ones we've mentioned. Um, I don't want to get over you. Um, but I think the two that are really big for me that we haven't mentioned at all are, um, first of all, crazy for you, but not that crazy. Uh, mm just because uh, I've been obsessed like that <laughs> just like doing far too much and then like when I start you know when you move back from 90% to 50% obsession you're like see I'm normal now um, I think that's great uh, <laughs> and then the the other one is um, the things we did and didn't do uh I think because, I mean, it's, it's a combination of the type of like toxic relationship and the kind of like reflecting on it in the past and like the mix of regret and nostalgia. And it's also like the perfection of how it is expressed in the lyrics. Um, this to me feels very Sondheim-y in the way that like, there's just these like long sentences that pile on clauses, but each clause is like so necessary. Um, like when it's uh, all the things I knew I didn't know and didn't want to know that you told me just to tell me later that you told me so. There's so much repetition. Um, and like uh, the whole line is like obsessed with itself and turning back on itself. And it is this just, like, really brutal, like, yeah, I was ignoring things about our relationship, and then you threw those things in my face so you could hurt me more later. Um, and then all of that, like, intricate, like, language intricate, uh, kind of rhythm intricate, not intricate, but, like, uh, the, the, that, that very Sondheim-y line, and then it ends with, the things we did and didn't do, which is like the absolute simplest, like that refers to literally everything, both the things we did 
And the things we didn't do. Yeah, there's, there's a Venn diagram here, which has two sections to it. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's really what it is. Every relationship that ever went wrong, it's, I mean, it's the things we did. And it is also all the things we didn't do. And I just, I like, I like that a lot. Um, yeah. There is one last thing in my notes that I wanted to, to like, hit, which is... So we've talked a bunch about like the musical style being this really reserved thing. We've talked about uh, well, reserved with the, about having that kind of like sixties focus on the vocals, withdrawal of the some of the the other elements. Uh, like that's how it's arranged and produced. Like catharsis is a thing that I find very complex when listening to this album because this mm. doesn't fit in terms like in terms of a time commitment. I, it's very hard for me to imagine like sitting with this album, starting an emotional arc and ending it by the end in a different place. Like I have my own like impeccable breakup album and it is Take Me Apart by Kalela. It is the album that I go to when I am like in my fucking feelings about romance. And it is an hour long album. Um, it is an album that I can sit through in its entirety and like, be t- yeah 54 minute album that I can like start off in a particular place as the album does and end up in a very different one as the album does like it's got a very particular arc to the to the like emotional space it's inhabiting um and the, one of the things that this album has I don't know if I call it an issue but certainly like a feature is that because it loops back to so many different sensations like narrative situations and also doesn't have the same kind of, it doesn't use the instrumentation to like wrestle the emotional space from anywhere to anywhere else. It's very much relying on like, okay, so what is the song saying? And if the song is saying something that like, sounds a lot like it did 20 tracks ago, or as it does in this album, I'm not gonna say Peter out, but like obviously quite deliberately, pick Xylophone track and Zebra to end on. It yeah. feels like this track, susp- uh, the album as a whole, the project as a whole, like suspends a lot of the catharsis that you might get out of the project of like writing a bunch of love songs and then signing off with the, like the simple one that like leaves you in a place of like pseudo resolution or something like that. Um, you have obviously said like this is clearly also an album for like listening to on shuffle. So I don't know if you've got any different feelings about like I'm just approaching it in a way that it can't like rewards me for my like attempts to be a committed listener, but like. Um, it was, it, yeah, this just turned into like a sort of place where like, oh, this is an album. It's so easy to just get fucking lost in. No, I mean, I think you're right. I have another sort of proposal for uh, mm. a perhaps intended listening pattern other than the kind of play on shuffle, uh, you know, whenever you feel like it thing that I, that I also think is intended. I think another way you could listen to this album, and I think maybe this is also intended, is uh, you start at the beginning... You play through in order, and you just play it whenever in your life. You know, you play it while you're brushing your teeth. You turn it off while you're uh, listening to the news radio. You turn it back on while you're making your coffee, whatever. You just kind of stop where you have to stop because you're not listening to music right now in your life, but you turn it on every time you're listening to music when you're not doing anything else. And when you get to the end, you loop it. And you can just live in this album that way. 
And I don't think that's a good idea. No, <laughs> I don't think that's just... like a good thing to go through. But I think that there is a way in which zebra and like the alphabet thing is really underlining this too, right? Invites mm-hmm. you to go all the way back to the beginning. And in inviting you to go back to Absolutely Cuckoo, it does kind of tell you, you could just do this forever. Mm-hmm. And you've got to basically decide yourself where you want to get off this ride. Yeah, I want my hat to be held a bit more. <laughs> uh, you should listen to a different album then. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I say this very specifically because the album You should I listen to Blood on the t- Tracks by Bob Dylan. Oh my... <laughs> Uh, the album I mentioned, Take Me Apart, is absolutely one of my all-time favorite albums. It very much starts in... It starts at a place of, like, anxiety about our relationship, goes through its, its, like, evolving complexity and tension, an attempted resolution, a complete collapse, um, a reaction through, uh, like, uh, hedonism and self-destruction, um a sense of absolution and then like looking forwards towards a more settled, better emotional life with other people, but also with your former partner as part of it. Like I say that and that sounds like the ideal breakup, right? And it very much is. It's positioned as much like the, the arc of the album is like near perfectly mirroring all sorts of like processing stages in this like thoroughly neat and very, very natural way. But the, it also means that you get to the end of it and like there isn't a reason to loop it unless you just want to you know listen to the first couple tracks again because they're bangs but mm-hmm. that's a very very different thing to yeah like i'm scared <laughs> I, hmm. I was always like this album is intimidating it's it's like forcing me to think on my feet a hell of a lot given how like different all the sorts of different registers all the different sort of pulls it's trying to uh it's trying to make all the different things it's pulling from um but yeah the the lack of catharsis as like a, a, a I'm not gonna say a problem for me emotionally because I don't think that it's like causing me great distress or whatever but the risk of that I'd fall into it and never get back out is so palpable <laughs> yeah that's the thing I, I'm terrified of yeah I I think that's I think that's purposeful I think that the way in which this album is kind of uncomfortable and. Mm. I don't know, like, like it, it, there's, it's hard to find a song on this album that really feels sincere. Like we talked about like how on the one hand you can kind of get sincerity out of any of the songs, but on the other hand, it's maybe just the book of love, maybe one or two others that you can point to where you're like, yeah, this is just sweet. You could play this at a wedding. Um, It's doesn't really want you to get comfortable with the idea of love or even with the idea of love ending. Yes. Um, yeah. God, you know, I think the last song on every album actually all speak to that. Cause like I talked about mm. how I think zebra invites you to loop back to the beginning and also how I, I do think it's like purposely annoying. Um, I shatter is also kind of uh, spiky and hard to get into. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the things we did and didn't do, I think is more kind of overtly appealing than either of those other two tracks. But, you know, I talked about how I think it is Sondheim, like expressing the core of a really toxic thing extremely powerfully. So yeah, each of those ending tracks I think is kind of 
leaving you in a profoundly uncomfortable place. Mm-hmm. It's it's strange just for my own sake that I uh, definitely absolutely find um, Ashata the most comfortable of all of those and the most resolved, which is probably just, you know, speaking to my specific... <laughs> No, but I... My my specific aesthetic sensibilities, but yes, absolutely. Hey, everybody. This is Alexis, coming to you from the editing suite. Here are the albums we'll be talking about on the next episode of Hot Singles, which will feature me, Buchanan, and Autumn. We'll be talking about Earl Sweatshirt's Sick. Foreign Exchange by RX Puppy. And Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers by Kendrick Lamar. I hope you look forward to this exciting selection of albums. Uh, Mark, where could people find you online? I am on Twitter at Char Asnablunt, um, and I uh, do the podcast Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is about Moby Dick, uh, which is another <laughs> work that is so big that it has everything in it, um, mm-hmm. uh, which we, we uh, by the time this comes out, we will have wrapped, like finished posting our <laughs> four-part series on the absolutely terrible 2019 musical, Moby Dick, A Musical Reckoning, uh, for which we had two great guests, uh, Clay and Danny, who were both actually there for the premiere of that show. Um, and we just really uh, dug into all the reasons it's terrible. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, that's that's my other podcast, um, which... I'm hoping to be updating more regularly in the near future. Um, uh, but yeah, that's where that is. Did you know that the reason that the musician Moby is called Moby is because his family is actually related to Harold Melville? I learned Harold? that like two days ago. I think maybe from you. It is yeah, wild. Sp- specifically because they therefore gave him the nickname Moby Dick as a kid uh, that stuck, and he's now professionally called Moby, um, which is just hilarious, I think. Um, but I, I, um, I, I'm not going to finish that because it's a lewd joke and I don't want to sully this other <laughs> excellent podcast. I'm not going to finish I, that talk. It is very funny to nickname a child that. <laughs> it's a funny nickname for a child. Hey, where can people find you on the internet, Orson? You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find all the podcasts that I do by going to exportodd.io. Right there, you can get links to all the free feeds, or by giving us a dollar a month, you can get access to this podcast early, Ornate Stairwells, which is a podcast where I watch old movies with uh, Nia. Um, or... Um, Nora, what's another podcast we do? I've, I'm suddenly blank. Gotham City Limits, thank you. <laughs> I was just doing the one dollar ones. Um, Gotham City Limits, a bot- Batman podcast, and at some point in the future, question mark. Um, 
Ars Arcanum will return, where Mark and I talk about the uh, works. Of, Mark, my wife, and I talk about the works of Brandon Sanderson. Um, Wait, hang on. That that was a, a a comma misplaced there. That did a did a yeah. my boy works. <laughs> what, what, what is it? I I I, I, I just stumbled over there. the sentence. It's. Fine. I, I am I am <laughs> anyway. not. A, I am not a male wife. No. <laughs> just want to stake that claim. Yeah. That is not the type the of sentence. Not the type of non-binary mask that I am. No. Yeah. Anyway, Mark, Nora, and I uh, read the works of Brandon Sanderson, and that will come back at some point in the future. Um, it got derailed by work, and then maybe today I've decided to pursue a promotion at work. I don't know, so... Do it, do who, it. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah. And finally, for $5 a month, you can listen to probably my best podcast, which is Pop Town Funk, which is just Nora and I hanging out on the couch. Um, nominally, there's gimmicks, but mostly we just hang out on the couch. To be uh, honest, the gimmicks and... are quite, quite painful on that one specifically. So, <laughs> Okay, sometimes they're good. They watch Star Trek. They did yeah, watch Star we just Trek. watched a good episode of Star Trek. Sure, we had to watch Guardians 2 to get there. But yeah, no, no. I was going to say, did you not watch something absolutely horrendous immediately before that? And I was struggling to remember what, because like, you were so clearly disinterested in it. But yeah, no, okay, the but answer was yes, you did watch something horrendous. You've also, you've also given yourselves the escape valve at this point. Uh, after your, um, what was it, your Sid and Nancy episode? Uh, Sid and Nancy, which is... A perfectly fine movie that we just didn't want to watch. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You gave yourself the escape valve by not watching Sid and Nancy, and then you watched Guardians 2. So you've made it clear what side your bread is buttered on. God damn it. Be good to yourselves, please. This is all I ask. Alexis, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Regression with three S's. Don't forget the third S. Um, and my other podcast is uh, Stan Ontology, which is a K-pop track breakdown podcast, which had an episode out last month, I think, and should be coming yeah. back shortly as well. You should also plug your music that you make. Should I? Should I really yes. do that? This is your oh, music yes. podcast, obviously, oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, I had a track out on a quite excellent EP called The Lost Mecha Files. I think that... Lost Mecha Tools? Lost Mecha Tools. Um, I should know the name of... It is Lost Mecha Tools. I should know the name of the, the EP my track got released on. Uh, from Twofold, who is amazing, and all the other very, very cool people at Eat This, which is the label collective um, that I am part of. We're going to find out literally this evening whether we uh, won best upcoming label or best newcomer label in North America from DJ Mag, which will be very fucking cool. But oh, there's sure. a genuine, genuine chance we might actually win that. We'll see. But yeah, um, check that release out. Um, we're pioneering new lanes in electronic music, and I can say that entirely unironically because Bandcamp Daily, the magazine attached to Bandcamp, said so. So, <laughs> hell yeah, um, that rules. There you go. And with that, I think it's time to say thank you to all boy whites, and we'll see you next episode. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks, boy wives. 